This week's passage comes from 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and find your way back to 1 Corinthians 13, and let's pray together and ask God to meet us as we look at his word. Gracious Father, as we uh, open your word this morning and look on what is for many of us a familiar passage and what is for all of us a familiar word and idea, this idea of love, we pray that we would see it afresh. We pray we would see it from your perspective. We pray, God, that, that as your spirit has poured out your love on us in our lives, that your love would be our focus, that your love would fill our hearts, and that whatever cheap imitations or false representations we may hold or hang on to, Lord, would all of that fall away when we see the true and beautiful offer of love that you have for us and as we seek to reflect that to one another. So meet us this morning, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the answer is going to be obvious based on the title of the sermon, but if you had to identify one chief characteristic of a church shaped by the gospel, so of all virtues we might associate with Christianity, one defining mark that clearly identifies those who have met God and been changed by him such that you could reasonably conclude that someone who bears that virtue knows the Lord, 
what would that one defining virtue be? When we were uh, moving a couple of weeks ago and so many friends came to help us, uh, there was a moment in the afternoon when our mailman stopped by to say hello and to deliver uh, our mail to us one last time. And we loved our mailman. He was one of the nicest guys. We never had a chance to really get to know him well. He's just gentle and kind and, and just really nice. And as he's visiting with us, I hope I could tell this story, Christina. Okay, good, because I was going to anyway. Uh, as, as I'm visiting with our mailman, Chris, there's a moment when Christina walks out and looks at him and says, you're a grassy, aren't you? And he says, yeah. You a Demasi? Yeah. And, it, and I'm watching this. I'm like, wow, I am in the presence of townies right now. I mean, they just... Now, I, I don't know if it was their eyes or their nose or what it was that gave each other away that, that kind of, you know... Uh, but there was some defining feature, some mark that told each other what family they were part of. And they recognized it. And the church should be the same way. The church should be the same way. There are certain features or characteristics that ought to mark us as members of God's redeemed family. Certain fruit that the gospel of Jesus should bear in our lives. And according to the Bible, the chief virtue among them, the one that we should expect to see, is love. Love is the most important mark of a gospel-shaped church. Now, as we've been working through our series, looking at how the good news of Jesus applies to different aspects of life, and as we've been right now specifically looking at what difference the gospel, the, the message of Christ who, who came and lived a sinless life in our place and gave his life on the cross for us that we might be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled with God, Uh, As we've been looking at how that good news applies to the church, that's the section we're in right now, we've already seen love come up in almost every single passage that we've looked at so far. When we looked at partiality a couple weeks ago, that was contrasted against love. When we looked at reconciliation a couple weeks ago, that was based on love. So love is this foundation, this defining feature, and what I want to do this morning is is just zero in on that defining feature. If it's so important and so crucial, what does it look like? Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, this is the verse from which we get Maundy Thursday, a new commandment or mandate that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. According to Jesus, love is the defining mark of his redeemed people. And and again, our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 13 makes that exact same point. It begins and ends by showing us the necessity and the preeminence of love in the life of the church. And then in the middle, it tells us what that love looks like. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 might seem like an odd place to land if we want to look at love in the context of the church. 
Because we usually associate this chapter and these verses with weddings and marriage. That's the you know, last time you heard this read, how many of you were at a wedding? You know, uh, a few of us at least. And it's almost kind of hard to read these verses without kind of hearing a, somewhat of a drippy tone. When, you know, uh, love is patient, and love is kind, and you know, we're just used to hearing it that way. And, and all of that is fine as far as it goes. This passage certainly applies to marriage and, and to weddings and so on. But in the context of the letter that Paul's writing, he's actually applying these verses to the life and ministry of the church, which is why I wanted to look at this passage today. So the church in ancient Corinth, it had become divided by selfish interests and deluded by worldly desires. It was in trouble. And Paul's writing to this church partly to address some of the problems that have been reported to him and partly to answer some of the questions that the Corinthians had been asking him. And one of those questions that they had been asking him was about you know, the use of spiritual gifts in the life and worship of the church. And that's what he's addressing in chapters 12 through 14. So in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14 are really one big section. And in the middle of that is obviously 13. So the question he's addressing uh, is, is this broader question of spiritual gifts. And some in the Corinthian church at that time had begun to measure the spirituality of others based on which gift they had or practiced. And that had become this litmus test, this almost competition within the church of who was more spiritual than the other person. And so Paul's responding to that question and that problem. And, and if you read all three chapters, you'll see that he responds in a lot of different ways. But the heart of his response, the main thing he says to help counteract this divisiveness is chapter 13. This chapter on love. The preeminence of love in the worship, in the life and ministry of the church. And so verses 1 through 3, Paul lays out the necessity of love specifically in the context of the issues he's addressing in that church. Without love, the miraculous gifts that the church was fighting about are utterly useless. And that's the point he makes in verses 1 and 2. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just an annoying sound. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And in the same way, even our, our greatest sacrifices that we might make for God, if divorced from love, if they're not flowing out of a heart of love, gain us nothing, according to verse 3. So love is utterly necessary for the life and ministry of the church. It's this defining mark. And in contrast to the, to the spiritual gifts that the church is fighting over, only love will last forever. And that's the point he makes at the end of this chapter, verses 8 through 13. So when it comes to spiritual maturity uh, and the extent to which we know and experience God, 
the gifts that they're arguing about are far less important than love because, first, the spiritual gifts are only temporarily useful, and second, they only provide a partial benefit, whereas love lasts forever. That's his point. So you look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. They're not going to be around forever. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And it's only partial anyway, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that is when we all see Jesus in the new creation, the partial will pass away. We will grow out of our need for the very things that you're making more important than everything else. Like growing, like a child growing up. So essentially, what Paul is saying is that fighting over who is more spiritual based on which gifts you might have or use is like two adults fighting over who's better at Mario Kart or, or who can do a math worksheet faster, okay? When you're a child, that's everything. You know, that's, that's bragging rights in third grade. When you're a grown adult, that's kind of dumb. And, and that's what they're doing. And so Paul wants them to see you're emphasizing the wrong things. The most important thing is not all of these different gifts that you might find your value in. Or we might add to it who has more Bible knowledge or, or who has, you know, a better program or worship service or something like that. The most important thing is love. That's the mark that defines God's people. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But that raises a question, if we want to get practical. How do we know this love when we see it? What does it look like? How do we recognize the, the family traits within a gospel-shaped church. And what do we do if we find ourselves wanting or lacking in some of those areas? Or if we find ourselves not really receiving that love? What if our love has grown cold? Well, it's the family traits themselves, the, the, the marks of true love that Paul focuses on in the heart of this chapter, which is really the heart of this whole conversation in chapters 12 through 14. That's verses 4 through 7. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of our time. The true marks of love, of biblical Christ-like love. And Paul helps us understand love here, not so much by telling us what love is, but by showing us what love does. Showing us what love does. He describes it in 15 different ways in these you know, few verses. Not by using adjectives. If you come with me back to you know, seventh grade grammar for a moment. He's not using adjectives or describing words. He's using verbs. Action words. This is what love does. That's what he's showing us. And again, 
many of us are familiar with these lines, and, and, and you glance at the list, and our initial impression is probably that you know, a lot of these feel both obvious and impossible at the same time. I mean, who among us would disagree that love is patient and kind and not rude or arrogant? It's kind of common sense. And yet, who here doesn't have a hard time with patience or arrogance? And so, it's obvious but impossible because standing in opposition to every single attribute on this list, threatening to undo it, is me. Self. I am the greatest threat to love in the life of the church. Me. Myself. Ourselves. My wants. My needs. My plans. My desires. My goals. My kingdom. That is the enemy of this kind of love. It's so powerful that we often use this chapter not so much to learn how to love but to make sure other people are loving us well. And we hold it up and say, you're not doing these things. Instead of saying, where am I falling short in this call to love? This is a vision for the kind of love that ought to mark us as a community of faith in Jesus, as the people of God in Christ. But this is a vision of love that is only possible if we first know the love of Christ for us. And so what I want us to do, we're going to walk through each of these attributes. We'll do it relatively quickly. We won't be here till three. It's not a 15-point sermon, don't worry. But I want us to do three things as we look at them. And you have to do some of the work on this yourself. So I want us to think about what each attribute means. What are we really talking about? What does love do in this sense? And I want us to ask ourselves, not how's my wife doing on this one, or or, how are my kids doing or my friends, but how am I doing on this attribute? And I want us to remember that where we see ourselves falling short, and we will, I want us to remember how Christ is the perfect embodiment of every single one of these attributes. We love because he first loved us. And if we don't keep it in that order, we will never have any hope of actually living this passage out. And so we need to understand it and we need to reflect on it, but we need to reflect on it in light of Christ's love for us. And so that's where we're going in these verses ahead. So first, love waits patiently. And I'm trying to frame each one of them in more of an action-oriented thing. It's true to say love is patient, but patience here is a verb. Love waits patiently. That's what it does. Which means I'm off to a bad start when I look at that list. You know, after our recent move uh, a couple weeks ago, our average commute time has gone up uh, somewhat significantly. Our family sleep patterns have not yet been adjusted to accommodate that extended commute. And so if you want, <clears throat> excuse me, to see your pastor impatient, show up at the Levering household at about 755 
on a school morning. And, you know, I'm impatient with my kids, impatient with my wife, impatient with myself, and impatient with every single person on the road in between me and the school. Uh, When I watch someone in front of me kind of slow down and let that person turn left into the lane, I'm not thinking in that moment, wow, I really hope this helps that person get to work on time today. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Uh, I'm screaming inside. Do you not understand? My kids have been tardy four days in a row. Are you just, you know, uh, Paul, Paul Tripp jokes that I want to drive on roads paid for by other citizens who choose not to use them. That's really what this is about. That's what I want. And it's not very patient. Patience is hard because self is so consuming. Patience is hard because self is so consuming. A patient love comes from only one place. It flows out of a trust in God. A trust that God is the one in control of this situation. And I can extend patience to somebody, even someone who's offended me or wronged me, only if I believe that God is in control and that Christ is my vindication and my value. Otherwise, my kingdom is at stake and I must defend it. The love shows patience. It waits patiently. It doesn't demand its own timetable as though the world is going to fall apart if my will isn't done immediately. It doesn't blurt out or barge in. Love gives space when it's needed. It's patient. Just like Jesus shows patience to us. If you think about all of the times during Jesus' life when the disciples just didn't get it, you know, Jesus is trying to teach them about the the threat that the Pharisees' teaching is, you know, the, the beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're over here thinking about lunch. What bread? Somebody say bread, you know. And you know, Jesus is explaining to them he has come for the explicit purpose of dying on the cross and rising again, and Peter's saying, it's not going to happen on my watch. You know, they just don't get it. Jesus is patient. He could have just washed his hands and started over. He was so patient with them. And he is so very patient with us, isn't he? I mean, how how many times do we make the same mistake over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? And yet there is Christ still calling to us in his love. Love is patient. And so if that's how Christ has loved me, how can I show that love to others? I'm not going to be able to do it if I'm not first convinced of Christ's love for me. Love shows and waits patiently. That's the first one. Second, love shows kindness. Love is kind. It shows kindness. And kindness here is not simply being nice. That's kind of how we often, you know, it's a very kind soul or, or something, you know, somebody's very nice. And, and being nice is a good thing, but kindness is more than that. Uh, Anthony Thistleton defines it as, quote, pure and unselfish concern for the well-being of the other. 
pure and unselfish concern for the well-being of the other. Which may not always look or feel nice. You know, for instance, it's not very nice to put up a tall fence and a mean sign on it that says, warning, stay out. It's not very nice. But it might be very kind if what's on the other side of that fence could kill you. And so the point here is that love seeks what is best for the other. That's what kindness means. It's seeking what is best for the other. And what's best for the other, according to Scripture, is to know and be found in Jesus. That's ultimately what's best. That's our goal in love and in kindness. The greatest kindness in this world is what Christ did for us on the cross. Giving his life in our place that we might be cleansed of our sin and reconciled to God. There is no greater act of kindness than that. And so the greatest kindness we can give is to help somebody know Jesus in that way and find their sufficiency and satisfaction in him. Think of Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's nothing better. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so love, in its kindness, helps someone find their identity and their satisfaction and their security and their sufficiency and their glory in Jesus Christ. Which means that real love is always moving people toward the gospel. Always moving people toward the gospel. That's what's best for all of us. Love is not about what makes me look good. Nor is love simply about what makes someone else feel good. If my friend or my child or my colleague are going in a direction that makes them feel good, but is not ultimately good for them, according to Scripture, then it is utterly unloving for me to affirm or encourage that direction in my life. That's not love, that's callousness. So love shows kindness by seeking what is best for the other. And what is best is what's going to move them closer to Christ. So that's the second one. Love waits patiently. Love shows kindness. Third, love does not envy or brag. Love does not get caught up in the haves and the have-nots. It's another way to think about this. So if, if the standard of our holiness or, or spirituality is the practice of a specific gift, as you know, some in the Corinthian church had been teaching, then those who have it will be prone to brag, and those who don't will be prone to envy. Which makes it hard to love somebody if you're constantly competing with them and measuring yourself against them. The same thing can happen today in all sorts of different ways. Whenever we let something other than Jesus be the source and standard of our spiritual life, 
whether it's our Bible knowledge or whether it's well-adjusted kids or our marriage status or our success or any number of things, we open the door to choke out love and replace it with envy and boasting because we're constantly ranking ourselves relative to each other. That's not what love does. But if Christ, on the other hand, is everything, if he is our creator, our savior, our king, our provider, our judge, our great high priest and defender, if Christ is everything and has given us everything, then there's nothing on earth that I can really take credit for in terms of bragging. And there's nothing on earth that I ultimately still need because I have Jesus. And so I'm free just to love and to forget about that game. Love doesn't envy or boast. Fourth, love is not inflated with its own importance. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a hard list. And as we keep going, it gets harder and harder. And yet, remember at each stage, the gospel of Jesus where Christ is loving us even though we're not always loving well. Fourth, love is not inflated with its own importance. Uh, Most of our translations read something like, love is not arrogant or proud or puffed up. And that last one really captures the picture of of what's being described there. It's being puffed up, swelled up uh, with our own self-importance. And again, there's that word self. That becomes the focus, the alternative to love. It makes us hard to approach when we're swollen with our own pride, when we think we've got it together or we're doing better than someone else. And it makes us hard to love somebody else if I can't see past my own nose and actually love them. And the contrast to that is, of course, humility. Humility, which as C.S. Lewis reminds us very helpfully, is not so much thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And I love that distinction. It's the same humility that we see in Jesus. Philippians 2 says that he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped at, something to be exploited for his own selfish gain, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we live in a culture that celebrates upward mobility. You've got to keep moving up the social ladder, up the corporate ladder. This is downward mobility. I must die so that I am free to love. That's what Christ does. Not because he thought less of himself. He was God all the way through this. But because he thought of himself less. And he thought of us. And his father. So love isn't puffed up with its own importance. Fifth, love does not act improperly. Or as many of our translations put it, love is not rude. Again, this is common sense, right? Love observes common courtesies. It shows respect. I heard a story um, 
not too long ago about a young person who, during a job interview, was answering texts and, and responding to them while they're having this interview. It's no shock that they didn't get the job. But how often do I sit in my chair at home? How many times does my wife have to say to me, Brandon, 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 while I'm just on my phone and I'm sitting there nodding along with the conversation and then I'm like, what? That's not love. She's burying her head right now because you know, this is a self-glorying moment right now. It's like, yes, vindication. No, just kidding. No, I'm guilty as charged. And, and so often we do this. Again, this is, is right here. This is the world right here, and it all revolves around it. That's what I'm doing in that moment, and I'm not thinking of the other. Sorry, babe. So love is not rude. It's respectful. It shows common courtesy. Sixth, love does not seek selfish ends. This is where it really comes to the heart of it. Love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't lay out the terms of engagement and demand that we all play according to my rules. The temptation that we all face is to make life and ministry and relationships all about me instead of about Christ and others. And again, it's, it's reiterating the point that, that I am the greatest threat to love, that self is the greatest threat to love. And here we see the difference between truly loving someone and simply using someone. Because we can do a lot of very kind things that are helpful and that look loving to others. But we have to ask the question, what am I seeking in that moment? Am I seeking the good of the other? Or am I simply using them as a means to my end, whatever that might be? And very few of you will be able to tell the difference looking at it. But I know in my heart, am I loving or am I using love Loves someone. It doesn't use them. Love is selfless, in other words. Just like Jesus. Think of Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Love doesn't seek selfish ends. Number seven, love does not become irritable or overreact. It's not easily provoked, crabby, touchy, temperament, temperamental. Again, all of which, of, all of that's fueled by self-interest. Love doesn't assume that I know the motives of someone who's doing something I don't want them to do and then respond according to my assumption. In a lot of ways, this is simply another way of saying the very first thing, love waits patiently. It isn't just crabby and irritable. It loves the other person enough to do the hard work of having a relationship with them and not just reacting. Number eight, love does not keep a record of wrongs. The ESV uses the word resentful, but that's far too vague uh, in my opinion. Uh, 
Paul is basically talking here about the habit of never really letting go of an offense that someone has committed against you. You know, keeping it, you know, in the ledger. You, you may utter the words, I forgive you, but you never actually go and blot it out from the ledger. It's still there. And you keep adding to it, and it builds up, and it builds up. It's our way of keeping people in debt to us so that we can leverage that pain at the right time. It's very obviously obviously not love. That's, you know, vindictiveness when it comes down to it. Self-righteous vindictiveness. But it's so easy to do. Because, again, if I don't protect me, who will? If I don't guard me and my ways, who will? And and we just slip into this self-centered mode instead of following the lead of our Lord and looking at the way he deals with our sin. You know, think of Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, which is a metaphor that you should not be able to pin down because the heavens are as high as, you know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, and the two never meet, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's how God, through Jesus and the cross, deals with our sin. He has buried it in the bottom of the ocean, never to be found again. Praise God. So what will it take for me to deal that way with the sin people commit against That, my friends, is a miracle. And it's called the grace of God in Jesus. That's the only thing that will ever help me not keep that laundry list. And what an incredible difference it makes when you watch that. I think last week of what uh, Tosh Hope shared during her story. In what world do you become close friends with the woman who slept with your husband and is now married to him instead of you? In what world do you become close friends and sisters? Only through the gospel of Christ. That doesn't compute in the world. But Jesus redeems. Jesus heals. Jesus brings reconciliation in places the world cannot understand. That's love. That is love. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Nor, number nine... Does love take pleasure in someone else's wrong? Love does not take pleasure in someone else's wrong. In verse 6, there are countless ways that we're tempted to do this. Um, And get real creative on this one. When you think of that, that secret pleasure you feel when someone opposed to you messes up, makes a mistake, or fails. Yes, you know, you don't want anybody to see that, but, you know. Or the joy we get from being able to say, I told you so. You know, I am enjoying their wrong. Or maybe it's finding enjoyment in things like gossip or slander. 
And it's amazing to me in, in the checkout line what an industry we've made out of glorying in the screw-ups of others. All of the, I mean, every magazine there is like all of the mistakes these people have made. Let's go revel in them. Maybe taking pleasure in someone else's wrong is, shows itself in kind of you know, a contrarian spirit, always focusing on the negative and what's wrong with life or what's wrong with someone or what's wrong with our church. It's an easy temptation to take pleasure in someone else's wrong. And yet more than being tempted, today we are increasingly commanded to celebrate wrongdoing by the world around us. One of the most frequent criticisms of the church today, despite the fact that love is supposed to mark us as God's people, is that the church is unloving. We hear that all the time. And some of those criticisms cut painfully close to home, where we have loved ourselves more than we've loved God or our neighbor. And we need to repent when we do that. Yet some of that criticism is based on the demand that we rejoice in what the Bible considers wrongdoing, and if we don't, then we're unloving. And we can think of lots of examples in our culture today, but the obvious one that that makes the news daily is the question of gay marriage. Um, Now, there's no question that the church has uh, not always handled this issue in a healthy way, which is an understatement. And I want to be very sensitive here because this isn't a theoretical conversation. This is, uh, you know, about our children for some of us. This is about our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues. This is about us for some of us. And so I don't want to glibly just kind of, you know, look at it. The gospel of Jesus gives us a perspective for navigating all issues, this one included. And later on in the series in the fall, we're actually going to take a week and look at this. We need to understand how does the good news of Jesus help me think about this big question today? And the framework we'll look at is the same framework we're looking at everything through. That that sin really is sinful and grace really is sufficient. That's a gospel framework. So what the Bible calls sin really is sinful, but the grace we have in Jesus really is sufficient to deal with that sin. But when it comes to this description of love as not rejoicing in wrongdoing, it's worth reflecting this morning that you know, the fact that we are being told by friends, uh, by believing friends, by non-believing friends, that, that if you want to be loving towards someone who is moving toward gay marriage or something like that, then you have to celebrate that relationship or else you will be unloving. You need to bake two cakes, not just one. The fact that we're being demanded to celebrate wrongdoing, according to Scripture, flies in the face of love's definition right here. And we need to see that. If love is kind and seeks what is best for someone, and if love does not rejoice in someone's wrong, but instead rejoices in truth, then affirming and celebrating something that God says is wrong is not love by any logical definition. Love says 
Jesus loves you and wants you, and he gave his life for you just like he gave his life for me. That's love, pointing them to Christ, where they can find the same love we have found as sinners before a holy God. That's love, friends. That's rejoicing, not in wrongdoing, but in truth. And that's the next part. Number 10, love celebrates the truth. And that's the contrast. We don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but we do rejoice in what is true, what is right, what is good, and what is beautiful in this world and in the lives of one another. Love avoids willfully misrepresenting others or bending the truth to get our way. Love doesn't give in to the temptation to spin things to my own advantage. Love celebrates what is true. What is true. And we don't have to give in to that because the truth of the gospel frees us to be honest where we've messed up, honest where we're wrong, because once again, in Christ, we have an adequate solution. We have hope able to deal with all of the ways that I mess up, with all of the ways that I'm wrong, with all of the untruths I've spoken. None of us are perfect or have it all together. But where we see God taking the truth of his life and applying it to our hearts, we celebrate that truth. We celebrate what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Love celebrates the truth. And then finally, taking the four attributes in verse 7 together, love never tires of tolerating. Love never loses faith never exhausts hope, and never gives up. Love never tires of tolerating, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, and never gives up. In a word, love is committed to the other. Love is committed. It will not let go. That's hard work. All of this is super hard work. I mean, perhaps you've invested in someone for years and never really seen the fruit of that investment. Or you've given everything to raising a child who is not walking with the Lord now. You've risked relationship with someone who continues to let you down. And you're not sure what to do. Love never tires of tolerating. Never loses faith never exhausts hope, and never gives up. This, again, is obvious, but impossible. I mean, of course, love is in it to the end. What else could love be if it's not in it to the end? But who can actually love this way? Who actually can can do this? Only those who have been loved this way through Christ. Imagine if Christ had reached a limit. What if he got tired of tolerating the foolishness of his disciples or the sin that he saw when he looked at the world? What if he lost faith in the plan that he and his father had created before the beginning of time to redeem the world? 
What if his hope was completely exhausted such that he simply gave up the mission? We can't imagine that. Yet we who are called to reflect that very love do it to one another daily. We would never accuse Jesus of something like that, and yet it's so easy for us to do as those who ought to be marked by his love. We, we give up on each other. We reach our limit. We walk away. We hit the eject button. And again, why do we do that? It's the same answer. It's me. It's me. It's self. I'm the greatest threat to love in this church. But the gospel tells me that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love is the most important mark of a gospel-shaped church, and we need to return to it again and again for the love of Christ to show itself in us. A church with a superficial love for God or others has had a superficial experience of the gospel. A church who has experienced the gospel profoundly loves profoundly. And so it all comes back to the gospel. We love because he first loved us. May we be known for that love here. Lord, you have spoken by your word. May your spirit take that and apply it to our hearts. Remind us of your love. Remind us, Lord. Where we don't believe it, would you show us more deeply? Would you speak your grace into our lives and expose in our hearts where we are not loving. Show us the enemy lurking within. Show us that holdout of the kingdom of me. And Lord, Lord, let that be crucified. That Christ would be everything in you, in all of us. Lord, thank you for loving us so greatly. May we receive and reflect that love. Jesus name amen